Lord, we come before your word this morning. Let your word be spirit and life to us. Let it minister to us. Let it bring encouragement. Let there be a washing by the word of our lives. And may we then present our lives to you holy and acceptable. May our lives bring you glory. And may your word enable that transformation to come about the Christ-likeness in our character and in our lives. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we come to the second last in our series on the book of Micah, one of the prophets of old. And I think a very good title for the whole of Micah is Hope for a Sinful World. And today, second last, the title is What is Required. What is Required. Micah, as uh, has been presented to you time and again, is a series of three cycles of judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. And today, we enter the third cycle of uh, judgment from Micah chapter 6 all the way to Micah chapter 7, verse 7. It talks about judgment. And then the third cycle of salvation is from Micah chapter 7, verse 8 uh, till, till the end. And in between this is the famous verse, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which we will talk more about later. So a very neat division, actually, in, in terms of preaching a sermon is for me to cover not just Micah chapter 6, but also the first bit of Micah chapter 7, that is the judgment portion, and then leave Elder Benny to cover the, the nice, pleasant salvation portion next week. But then I decided to leave some misery for Benny. Okay. Well, Micah chapter 6 begins in a form of a, a lawsuit, uh, what is called a covenant lawsuit. That that means the covenant was broken and God was bringing this lawsuit. So God is the plaintiff and it is like a heavenly family court. So I'm going to check uh, what is a family court and is there a family court in Singapore? Uh, it seems that there is. We have what is called a subordinate court in Singapore and the subordinate court has four divisions. One is criminal, then civil, then juvenile and then there's family uh, so the family justice division is, in effect, the family court. So my understanding of legal procedures is that the plaintiff or the complainant will make, come forward before the judge and make charges of all the contracts or the covenants that were broken. And then the, the, they will cross-examine the defendant, right? But we'll will read charges of all this and then cross-examine the defendant. But God didn't do that. Instead, God cross-examines himself like he was the defendant when actually he's, he was the one bringing forth the charges. You know, it's, it's sort of like this. It's like a, a professor of ornithology. Who knows what ornithology is? Study of birds. 
okay, sprang a surprise test on his students. He says, here is the test. Okay, you must tell me and you must identify each of these five birds just by looking at their feet and their legs. And all the students, they've studied long, they've studied hard, but they did not anticipate such a test. So they were all sweating, trying to remember and figure out if anything could help them to pass this test, to identify the birds. Finally, one student stood up and said, this is ridiculous. This is the craziest test I've ever seen, and you are the worst professor in this whole school. I quit. I'm out of here. I'm not going to take this test. And he turned and he walked towards the door. And the professor said, just a minute, just a minute, young man. Who are you? I demand to know your name right now. So the young man stopped, took a long look at the professor, then he pulled up his pants. Okay, I'm not going to do mine. Pulled up his pants and said, now professor, you tell me who I am. <laughs> it's kind of like upside down, isn't it? And God, through Micah, challenged Israel in the heavenly family court. And he says, you tell me. You tell me what I did wrong as God. It's just turning, turning it upside down. What we're going to do this morning, I want to go through a verse-by-verse commentary on Micah chapter 6. So if you turn to your Bibles or you flip or you punch whatever you have to Micah chapter 6, and just go through verse by verse. Micah 6, chapter, uh, Micah 6 verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. So as I mentioned, God did not charge the Israelites with what they did right or what they did wrong. Instead, he asked, what have I done? What have I done? How have I wearied you in another translation? Now you charge me instead of me charging you. And God's charge presented in this form shows that he was more concerned with the relationship between him as creator and his creator than any record of wrongdoings that his creator has done against him. And then continuing, he, he continued to recount his love and what he has done for Israel. Verse 4, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. So he recounted one of the greatest historical uh, evidence of God's love, that he redeemed his people out of, of slavery. He sent Moses to do that. And then Moses conveyed the covenant law, the Ten Commandments that came from God at Mount Sinai. And he sent Aaron, the brother of Moses, to be a priest to perform atonement for sins. He sent Miriam as a prophetess to his people. Verse 5, My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. If you remember this, this account in Scripture, Balak, the king of Moab, was against the children of Israel who had left slavery in Egypt and wanted Balaam, some kind of a weird prophet, 
to put a curse. It was like the ultimate spiritual warfare to put a curse on the Israelites. And God foiled the plans of this king of Moab. He even used a donkey to avert the curses that Balaam would have pronounced on his people, his beloved people. And then continuing, God says, Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. In Joshua's days, after Moses passed away, he led the children of Israel across the Jordan, and that was a very significant crossing. Where he started from was Shittim. Where he ended up across the Jordan was Gilgal. And God then established them in their homes across the Jordan. This was what he did for his children. And verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted? So this is beginning, I think, of sarcasm. It's like the people asking, So, you did all this for me. So, so what do I come before you? And, and what do I bring to bow down before you, God? And what more do you want from me, God? And this is what happens next from verse 7. It is man's response to God. What is man's response? Step up your piety. Step up your piety. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a day old? So you bring animals to present before the Lord. Well, if you read the Old Testament, a calf when it is eight days old, it can be offered to the Lord. Okay? Uh, too young <coughs> uh, is, is, is not proper. But a year-old calf means it's valuable. It is like the tastiest at that time. That is when you offer to the Lord. So should I offer you the, the, the best of, of calves? Verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with 10,000 rivers of oil? Can you hear the sarcasm here? It's like, wow, it's not even uh, 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 containers of olive oil, it's, it's river. It's, it's not even rivers, it's 10,000 rivers. God, will you be satisfied with that? It's hyperbole, right? Rivers of oil. And then it got really ridiculous and even grotesque. It says, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What does this mean? human sacrifice. Shall I offer my firstborn child and sacrifice the Lord and Lord, then you will be satisfied? Surely not, right? But it has happened. It has happened right in the days of the kings, which Micah was then talking about. There are at least two kings, King Ahaz and King Manasseh, who offered their sons following the ways of the people around them. I cannot imagine what would bring someone, a king, to offer your son. Except maybe it's the ultimate in selfishness. Right? If I give my son, I get something much, 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 much more than, than my offering of my son. It's the ultimate in selfishness. So in effect, these few verses is kind of like asking God, hey, just what do you want from me, man? What do you want from me? I come on Sunday religiously, on time even, I tithe 10%. I read the Bible, I pray every day. I even joined capping last night. What do you want from me? 
Why are you always like complaining and bringing charges against me? And then comes the famous verse, verse 8. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. God has shown you, O man, O little man, O Adam, is uh, in Hebrew, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God says is required. In January of 1977, when President Jimmy Carter was inaugurated, he placed his hand on the Bible. The Bible was opened up to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And then in his inaugural address, he used Micah chapter 6, verse 8 to, to begin his, his inaugural address. There is a, a plug in the Library of Congress. It's like kind of the largest library in the world in America. And that plug in the Library of Congress quotes Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It's even on the, the annual report of uh, Singapore Technologies Engineering. Okay, it's 2003, I think, when I was still sort of working part-time. And one of his directors, uh, a lawyer by the name of Lucien Wong, uh, He's a director of SD Engineering. In that annual report, he wrote this. One of my favorite Bible verses is from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And as a lawyer, I could identify with that calling. I have tried, consciously or otherwise, to excel in my legal career by acting justly and loving mercy. It's a famous verse. Quoted left, right, and center by all kinds of people. We'll come back to this famous verse uh, for some personal application later, but let's continue with our verse-by-verse verse commentary. Verse 9 now. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and a short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonor skills, with a bag of false weights? Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. This talks about a personal morality, about lying, about cheating on weights, about personal immorality leading to social injustice. Verse 13, Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil on yourselves. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. This is God's judgment. That whatever we do then, because we are not heeding God's law of love, bring us no satisfaction. You can have the best of wines, the best of olive oils, the best of crops, but you will not be satisfied. Verse 16, you have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house, and you have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. Omri, who is Omri? Omri was founded the, the Samaritan dynasty and he founded a capital at Samaria. Omri bastardized or, or, or 
mixed up the worship of Jehovah God. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 25, let me read, But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. So he's got a distinction. He's number one. He sinned more than all the kings before him. The start of Samaria, the Samaritan, which led to long, long enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And then Ahab. Ahab did even better. He excelled. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And further down in verse 33, he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So it's like, I don't know, you, you, one higher than the other, just simply excelling in evil was the charge of God against Israel. And that is Micah chapter 6. But we come back to that famous verse, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. For completeness, um, I have to mention another verse in the Bible that starts with, what does the Lord ask of you? And that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And it says, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Practically similar, these two verses, using quite different words. It's sort of like, it starts in Exodus with the Ten Commandments. And maybe people say 10 is too much to remember. And then by the time we get to Micah's days, it is three requirements. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And when it came to Jesus' times, it's just two. Right? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor and yourself. And it's like God is trying so hard to wake up. It's so simple. It's just these two. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. In Micah, there are three. Act justly, walk humbly, love mercy. So what is required? Firstly, do justly. I heard a sermon as I was researching this. Uh, a preacher was criticizing Jimmy Carter. He says, Jimmy Carter placed his hand on Micah chapter 6, verse 8, and uh, on the Bible at his inauguration, and after that, promptly misinterpreted Micah chapter 6, verse 8, by talking about social justice. justice. Really? Is it just personal morality and spiritual, spiritual stuff? And, and that when Jimmy Carter used Micah chapter 6, verse 8, to talk about social justice in America, that it is misinterpretation? What good is God's word if it refers only to a highly spiritual and personal morality and is silent on social injustice? I think Micah is all about social injustice because that personal immorality has, has degenerated so much in, in, in Micah's days that society was totally in unjust 
totally unjust. It's social justice. Just this, okay? Get it? Just this. One preacher commented that we are very just in our prayers. He says, oh Lord, I just pray that you will just do this and you will just do that. So it's a just prayer. We don't need to be justices or judges or even top lawyers to know what is just or unjust. Justice is not there when things are just not right. And we have our personal spirit-enabled conscience to guide us in that. When it's just not right, it is unjust. It is injustice. I like to read historical fiction. That's really what I enjoy reading. And usually these books are very, very thick where the historical facts are accurate, but they weave in, they craft in a human fictional story to make the story come alive. And one of my favorite authors is Ken Follett. Anybody knows Ken Follett? Okay, great. I've read all his books, okay, everyone. The latest is a trilogy, a series of three books. It starts with this book, The Fall of Giants, and it's talking about feudalism. It's almost, almost the medieval ages where there is a landed aristocracy, that means people who own land and the rest are all peasants. And there are noblemen who are not noble. The noblemen will go and rape some peasant girl and then they will steal money from the peasants, they will increase their tax, they will just kill uh, our people as and when they like it. And then they will live such lives of excesses uh, uh, and they will have great parties and the, the people will do nothing but just attend parties and drink wine and play with one another all day long. And that's when you read like some peasant girl who got raped by a nobleman, and then and then later on maybe her face was disfigured, and, and, and all it just makes your blood boil. It's just not right. The next book is Winter of the World. And then he enters with that same family, you know, their descendants and all that enters the 20th century. And there was the age of Nazism, the Nazi. Uh, uh, Germany, fascism, which is unchecked authority and power of one particular group, a select group, racism, the persecution of the Jews, the cowardice and the impotency of the church at that time. And again, it makes your blood boil. There is a third book coming out in this trilogy called The Edge of Eternity, except that it's not out yet. But they're already marketing this book. And it's going to be out on the 16th of September, 2014. Okay, Lee Kuan Yew's birthday. Mary Chang's birthday, okay? Our Mary Chang. Usually, I don't pick up, because when it comes out, it's hardcover, it's very expensive, so I wait a year. So I will not get to read the third part of this story until maybe 2015. Okay, long wait. If you guys buy the hardcover, okay, let me borrow it. But it just makes your blood boil. Right? How can the Jews be so persecuted? How can there be a Nazi party that was... How can there be a Hitler who was so powerful and everybody was fearful, and especially the church and especially Christians and especially pastors who got no guts to stand up to injustices? And all these issues of injustice like racism and poverty and unjust laws and slavery, you say, oh, they're all in the past. Right? Actually, we are quite okay these days. We are quite okay. But I think I, I may want to write a letter to Ken Follett and say, Dear Mr. Follett, would you come and write about Singapore in the 21st century? Let that be the fourth book 
And would you examine all the injustices in modern-day Singapore uh, about modern poverty, about the, the, the right of the unborn fetus, uh, about abortion, about there is no need to get parental permission to have an abortion, but if you want to buy liquor, you cannot until you're 21. Um, about modern slavery, like some migrant workers are suffering, about exploitative explo uh, 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 promotion of, of gambling or of money lending. Why don't you, Mr. Ken Follett, write something about this of modern-day Singapore? And maybe I'll provide him this anecdote. You know, uh, a BMW came to me. A BMW is a Bangladesh migrant worker. Okay. Now you know. Huh? So, he came to me uh, via uh, Pastor Yop, who's, who's back with us. And he's borrowed several thousand, no, several hundred thousand takas, which is Bangladeshi currency. Uh, one Sing dollar is 63 or 62 takas. So, he borrowed several thousand Sing dollars. And what are the terms? To borrow that amount, he took out all his family jewellery, which turns out to be 80% of the amount that he borrowed. So there is collateral for this money lender. 80%, he, he, he took it and he's safekeeping it. Then he lends you. And then he pays so many takas per month. And when I worked it out, the capital doesn't reduce. So let's say you, you borrow $2,000 worth, right? That means 80%, $1,600 worth of gold from your family, uh, whatever heirlooms is given to him for safekeeping. And then you pay back X amount per month. And I worked out that this X amount per month does not reduce the capital amount at all. It's just pure interest. And what is this interest rate? 60%. When you're sitting on 80% collateral, you collect 60% interest. And many, many South Asian migrant workers borrow much more than this. And I've been told that for them to come to Singapore to work, sometimes it takes just about five years or three to five years just to break even on the amount they borrow. So, so nothing goes back to their families. It's just to pay back this loan. And if they are retrenched within these three to five years, it's a real tragedy. They end up heavily in debt and then maybe they are asked to do all kinds of things. But this is it's a macro market thing, right? I mean, what, what can you and I do, right? It's, it's a macro thing. It's, it's willing buyer, willing seller. Nobody asks this BMW to go and borrow this money and, and pay 60% interest. Nobody asks him to do that. It's willing buyer, willing seller. What can you and I do? And there are so many. There are so many. How many are you going to help? Just this. You help just this one. Just this one. So another brother and I got involved and, and we did something. All we did was we saw one starfish beached on the sand and we took that starfish and we threw it back into the sea and there are thousands more. Justice, but just this one that came before us, we did something. The story didn't end here. After we did that, about two weeks ago, he had to have surgery on his hand. One hand surgery, unable to lift heavy weights. Six weeks later, he's going to have surgery on the other hand. And then I just heard that he will continue. He was forced to work. He was forced to work. Continue to lift 
heavyweights as a, uh, as a welder, even though he had MC. So there is injustice. The Bible is very, very clear in this. Deuteronomy 24, 14 tells us, Do not take advantage of a hired hand who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. So whether he is Singaporean, PR, E-pass, S-pass, whatever pass, work permit, you take care of that brother. I went to search this word alien on my Bible, and there are so many verses on aliens. And every one of them says that they deserve equal treatment. So if you, it is not right for a Singaporean to borrow money at 60%, it is also not right for a BMW to borrow money at 60%, no matter what the market principles and free market is. So when you talk about injustice, you can't help but mention Nelson Mandela. Tell me wrong. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. It should be this guy. <laughs> Morgan Freeman, the actor, the one who acted as God in many movies, says, please, please, I'm not dead. I'm still alive. It's Nelson Mandela who died, not me. <laughs> Truly, he, he had to come out to say something. Um, so one of the quotes from Nelson Mandela was, overcoming poverty is not a task of charity. It is an act of justice. Like slavery and apartheid, poverty is not natural. It is man-made, and it can be overcome and eradicated by the actions of human beings. Sometimes it falls on a generation to be great. You can be that great generation. Let your greatness blossom. Does it really affect us? Some of these are such macro issues. I mean, slavery... Who could overcome slavery is entrenched deeply. Apathy is, is entrenched deeply. What can you and I, one person, one Christian here and there do? But Mandala says that you can be that great generation. So I want to talk about, uh, in just in recent weeks, uh, how members of PPH have helped. So we have this widow who uh, came from Teban Gardens and and our people accompanied her, helped her get pampers and, and set up her home. And I think on the 12th of December, just a few days ago, one of our ladies went through the night with her because there were some complications in her delivery. Went through the night with her in the, li in the delivery room. And, and another lady was later on carrying this baby. Um, and like the whole world was, ah, you got a grandchild? I said, no, 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 it's is this, this baby, whose name is called Oscar. The older child, two years old, is called Olympic. So we are now Olympic and Oscar in the PPH family. My son said that the second child should not be called Oscar, should be called champion. Yeah. Olympic champion, come here! <laughs> and it's so joyful. It's just this, just one widow. Just one widow. Right? But it brings such a, a warmness to the heart. And then, you remember I talked about this 
uh, lady, I'm not going to show the face because I think nowadays we, we should just call them ABC rather than, uh, whose husband was incarcerated and then when we went to the house on the left side, it's like no kitchen sink. No kitchen sink. It was just like a stand tap. Um, no stove. Uh, with another two-and-a-half-year-old child, no window grills. Uh, this case was referred to us by the MP. And, and so, I think members of PPH came together, some donated money, some donated in kind, and we fixed the, the very beautiful uh, kitchen cabinet that you see on the right, and there are now grills on the window. It's just this. Produced by faith in Christ, prompted by love of Christ, inspired by the hope of Christ. Just this. Just one widow. Just one family. Did we help all the poor people in the world? Did we help all the powerless people in the world? Did we create a general solution for the eradication of poverty? No. Did we pass a bill in Parliament? No. Just this. Just this. You come across one starfish that was stranded on the beach, you take up that one and you throw it back. It's your responsibility to bring it to sea waters. And you cannot be apathetic, you cannot be just neutral. And another African in South Africa says this, Desmond Tutu, who was the first black Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town, he says, if you are neutral in a situation of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And that's what it is. That's what happened to the six million Jews who died. That's what happened to the rise of Nazism because people just kept quiet. We are neutral. So, what does God require from us? Be just. To be just is to be fair. As we give God his due, we give man his due. And poverty is not man's due. Secondly, to love mercy. What is the difference between justice and mercy? One time I went to a professional photographer. I wanted to get a, a passport photograph of myself. So he took the photo. A day later, I went to collect the photo. I looked at it and I told this photographer, this doesn't do me justice at all. The photographer responded, with a face like yours, you don't need justice, you need mercy. Okay. This is historical fiction. Some of the facts are there, but not all the facts are there. Do justice to be fair. Give man his due. Love mercy. Be nice. Lah. Be nice. Give man what is not his due. Okay, I know I have a face that only a mother can love. But you, photographer, you don't give me my due. Lah. Just say quite nice. Lah, you know? Don't give the man his due. You know, the, the love mercy is kind of a weak translation from the original Hebrew. The, the Hebrew word is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It's got all kinds of meaning. It means goodness or translated as goodness, kindness, faithfulness, mercy, loving kindness. And the examples in the Bible, plenty. The Good Samaritan. You remember it came from King Omri, right? He started this Samaritan thing in the north. 880 years before Christ. And that enmity between the Jews and Samaritans has survived almost a thousand years into Christ's days. And the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. But one Samaritan had, had 
H-E-S-E-D. One Samaritan loved mercy and he helped this undeserving Jew who was beaten up on the road. One, just one, just this. And then we have the prodigal son. Okay, uh, you, you can say that it was an apocryphal story by, by Jesus. It didn't really happen. But still, one father loved mercy. One father restored an undeserving son, just as that one Samaritan gave help to an undeserving Jew whom he has hated for 880 years. And the thief on the cross. One crucified Lord loved mercy and granted forgiveness to an undeserving thief on the cross. Just one. Just this. You know what they say? They say just and right people are very difficult to live with because they are so right. Because they are so just, black and white. And they are so hardened because they are right. They are always right. And righteous and self-righteous. So why should I give my hard-earned money to somebody undeserving? This guy should work harder. He shouldn't be so stupid to go and borrow money at that kind of interest rates. Stupid. Why do I reward stupidity? I'm right. I'm just. And there was this, this author called Peter Marshall who, who wrote this verse that I love so much. He, he wrote it in the form of a prayer. He said, Lord, where we are wrong, make us willing to change. Where we are right, make us easy to live with. We have so many right people and so many righteous people and we can be very difficult to live with because we do not love mercy. I don't know. Sometimes you just obey. Just obey. When, when Jesus says in Matthew 5.42, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who borrows from you, just, just do it. Okay, you may not give your whole fortune, but, and, and this is something I learned from our MP, you know, when she operates her Thursday Meet the People session. There is a principle that is in the West Coast uh, uh, Meet the People session. Nobody walks away empty-handed. We always give something, whether it is a small uh, gift or an NTUC voucher or something. And I thought that's a great thing. It follows Matthew 5.42. Right? Whoever comes in, it might be bluffing you and, and trying to squeeze something from you and get some charity from you, but nobody walks away empty-handed. Do any of them deserve it? Do all of them deserve it? No. But what is love mercy? What is mercy? Mercy is to give something to the undeserving. If they deserve it, then it is not mercy. Right? It's a right. So love mercy. And again, Mandala, what did Mandala say? He said, you will achieve more in this world through acts of mercy than you will through acts of retribution. You know, you seldom call a man a great man, but I think Nelson Mandela is really a great man. And thirdly, you do justly is to be fair. Love mercy, just be nice. And thirdly, walk humbly with your God. You know, how justice and mercy are, are, are impossible, I think unless we walk humbly with God. When the Bible says walk, it doesn't mean the physical walk. It means live, right? Live life. You walk this way, you walk in the Spirit, you live together with the Spirit. And walking humbly is very difficult. 
Who says walking humbly is easy? It's really difficult. But walking humbly with God is actually easy. Walking humbly with God is to walk in a way such that God does not oppose you. If God opposes you, you can forget about walking. Right? James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And if you have God's help, that's all the help you need. Walking humbly with God is an attitude of the heart. It is being soft in the presence of God. It is not being hard-hearted towards God and towards man. It is being soft in the sense that you can hear the soft, gentle whispers of God, the Holy Spirit, who might be saying, you see that old man over there? Looks to be 80 years old. He's still working as a cleaner in a food court. Go talk to him. Offer him a word of encouragement. Is our heart soft enough to hear that? Or is we cannot hear such whispers. You go over there, you see, this thing is just not right. It's not right. We cannot hear that because our hearts are too hardened. Our conscience is not tender because we are not walking humbly with God. Or you hear this whisper, just this one time, make it right for this person. Just this one time. No kitchen cabinet, just make it right. It costs you practically nothing. Gather a few people together, make this situation right. Oh, we can't hear that because we are not humbly walking humbly with God. So don't be imprisoned by hard-heartedness and apathy. We're just neutral. You're neutral, you don't disturb me, I don't disturb you, I'm neutral. Don't be like that. And, and talk to God in prayer. Complain all you want about injustice about in, in this world to Him. But when the soft prompting of the Holy Spirit comes, then we just obey. So do justice, be fair, give man his due. Love mercy, be nice. Give man what is not his due. Walk humbly with God, be humble, be tender-hearted, be soft towards the whispers of God. Let me end with one last quotation from Nelson Mandela. He said this, Tread softly, breathe peacefully, laugh hysterically. <laughs> In the words of another poem called the Desiderata, some of you may have heard this. Huh? It says, with all, towards the end, it says, with all this sham and drudgery and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. And Mandela puts it much better, I, say, I think. Laugh hysterically. I know we see all kinds of injustice and, and sometimes we feel like we can't do anything or, or if I do it, or what will it take from me? Or do I need to be challenging parliament and, and all that? But no, justice. So if you remember nothing today, just remember justice. Justice. One only. Right? Justice. Whenever the Lord prompts you to make something right, you just go and do justice. And you will be doing justly. You will be accomplishing justice. And just today I read uh, in the papers, uh, they were talking about Nelson Mandela, and this guy Robith something in, in the Straits Times today. He says, if you only lord, I mean, if you only praise Mandela, only to lord Mandela is lazy. 
only to Lord, L-A-U-D, Mandela is lazy. If we can't be like him, at least try to be a lesser diluted version of him. I think it's so true. Right? We can't all live 27 years in, in prison and fight for justice and, and all that. But we can do justice. Justice. Let's pray that the Lord will reveal to us what is this just one thing that this week or this afternoon He will be prompting us. Let's pray together. What is required from us? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. The question is, have we walked humbly with our God? You walk with God, you talk with Him, you pray. And maybe some of us here have stopped praying. It's like, what's the point? Open up your hearts. Let it be soft before the Lord. You pray, you listen. There are promptings in your heart that you and I know is from God because it is right. And God says, make this situation right. Justice. If you walk humbly with God, you will read His Word. Well, unless we memorize the Bible already and we know all there is to it, we've got to read it and read it again because God reveals Himself through, to us by His Word. If we, if we walk humbly with God, we will be listening to God. God is saying, and God will prompt us, <coughs> this week, this afternoon, just this one thing is all you need to do. Maybe it's to pray for someone. Maybe it is to offer a word of encouragement. Maybe it's to take out our wallet and give some money. If that is the case, then we just obey. Just obey. Then we will love mercy. Remember that mercy is for the undeserved. Many, many undeserving people need mercy. Where does this mercy come from? It comes from one who walks humbly, with God, who hears His voice, who obeys justice. Just this one thing. So let me encourage all of us now to open up our hearts to the Lord and come before Him humbly and pray. Lord, what do you require from me? And the answer is there. Act justly, love mercy, Walk humbly. But before anything else, to walk humbly, to turn to God in prayer, to turn to God in a humble attitude of heart, and to know that He placed us on earth to be His representatives for justice and for mercy. And we are that channel for justice and for mercy. And don't think too much. Just think one thing. Justice obey. So I encourage you to open up your hearts and to be sensitive to God all day long as we go to work, as we leave here, as we have lunch, as we spend time with the family today, as we enter into that crazy world again tomorrow. Be sensitive to the voice of God. 
read the Bible methodically, regularly, and call out to God daily in prayer. Ask Him to soften your heart. Ask for a sensitive spirit to hear His voice. And then we become agents of justice and agents of mercy. So God, I thank you so much for your heart-hitting words to us. It's simple, but sometimes so undoable. But I pray, Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for everyone here that we will walk humbly with our God. A God who even charges, what have I done wrong against you? Nothing. You've done everything right. You are more than loving, more than kind, more than merciful because it is, what we have is undeserved. Lord, would you then nudge us along in this journey of life always to be acting justly, to be loving mercy, to be walking humbly with you. And so I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.